That's a tough act to follow. Uh, I don't have any cheesy poofs, so I'm not going to sing it for you. Um, and, but, but that did kind of set the stage a little bit, to so just think about it for a minute. Um, if you noticed, and I'm calling this core values for Christ followers. And part of the reason I'm doing that is it speaks to our very human nature. In that there's something about most of us as humans that when we say a command, we get stiff-necked about it. And we just don't like being told what to do, even if we're being told what to do for our own good. But we all like values, and so core values uh, is saying the same thing. And I find it significant to remember that one of the things that Jesus said as he was teaching his followers, core values of Christ's followers, was, If you love me, what? You will obey my commands. And so there is, it's important for us to grapple with this. And we don't talk a lot about the Ten Commandments. Uh, obviously, there's been a season in our history where uh, they had kind of fallen out of uh, being politically correct. We were removing them from courthouses and such. Um, but as I said last week, the last time I checked, God had not rescinded the orders. There are still commands for us to follow. Uh, Jesus expressed it early in his ministry in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He expressed it later on in his ministry when people challenged him to rate the importance of the various commands of God. And so that's why we're revisiting this for children and adults alike. As Diana has already helped us see, today we're looking at the second core value. It's recorded in Exodus chapter 20, uh, verse 4. Um, goes on and talks about it in 5 and 6, and we'll get there in a minute. But God says, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on earth beneath, or in the waters below. The second core value for Christ's followers uh, addresses our need to carefully focus our worship and our priorities. That's why I'm calling it focus, focus, focus. The passage speaks about idol worship, and, and I would just have you think about those two words. The passage speaks about idol worship, but I would suggest another way of looking at it is idol worship. Now again, I'm not a mechanic. We've discussed that numerous times in, in this setting. Um, but when we say our car is idling, what's happening? It's not going anywhere. It's running, but it ain't going anywhere. And that's what happens when we worship the wrong stuff. We're going through the motions. There are forms of worship that have the wrong focus, and therefore they do not accomplish what is intended for true worship, which is to honor and respect God and to draw us closer into relationship with Him. That's why it is imperative, and that's why there's a command or a core value that calls us to focus, focus, focus. Focus on the essence and the nature of God. As portrayed in Scripture, this is not new to any of us, but as portrayed in Scripture, God is truly indescribable and incomprehensible. He is so big that my puny little mind just can't wrap my head around it. He is bigger than big. He is wiser than wise. And he is purer than pure. He is both timeless and ageless. <clears throat> Again, he is nowhere and he is everywhere all at the same time. Therefore, 
it is imperative that we grasp that idols or images only limit our perception of him. We have an innate human need, and that's part of our human nature, part of our sin nature, to want to be in control. And to have an image of our God suggests that he can be contained, controlled, or even manipulated. But none of that is true. The essence of our relationship with God boils down to faith. Faith in the unseen and the incomprehensible. That's the essence of our relationship with God and the essence of our worship of God. And again, we have a great capacity to want to put God in a box where we think we understand him. And I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say this. I suspect most of us don't carry around a carved, molded, or cast image to which we bow down in worship on a daily basis. We may be inclined to think, I don't have an idol. Therefore, this commandment or this core value does not apply to me. But before we disregard it as culturally irrelevant, I just remind you of a couple simple definitions. An idol or idol worship is faith in something, anything, other than the one true God. Now, I won't pick on any of you. I'll pick on me. What is the one thing I'm most inclined to have faith in other than God? Me. How many times have I been, I won't even bore you with by trying to figure out how many times I've been confronted with a challenge and I have not involved God in the process till I've exhausted all other options. Faith in something other than the one true God. Or faith in a visible manifestation or representation of God. And we're going to come back to that in just a moment. But again, as I said earlier, and as Leah helped me with, that, there's also that idea of idol worship. Worship that is active and running, but goes nowhere. Now many of you think, that's not me. But I wonder, how many times have we been to a worship service and left the same way we came in? We were not changed, influenced in any way, shape, or form by having spent time in the presence worshiping the one true God. This happens when our faith is in a visible manifestation of God rather than God himself. This happens when we go through the motions, but there is no motion. There are a couple of well-known Bible stories that reveal areas where we may be tempted to place our faith in something other than God. And the first one is a story in Exodus chapter 2. And many of you are familiar with the story, and it's a story of a golden calf. And the situation, this is actually very closely tied to Exodus 20, where we read about the, the Ten Commandments. Moses, who's been leading the people of Israel, they were in slavery in Egypt. Again, quick Bible story. Right? They were in slavery in Egypt. 
God uses Moses to miraculously lead them out of slavery. And they're in the wilderness. And Moses goes up on a mountain to have some one-on-one -on -one time with God. To get some clear instruction for God's people. And he goes up there and, and it's an awesome scene. The mountain shakes, there's, there's smoke, there's all this. And the people say, uh, you know, Moses, uh, this is pretty awesome stuff. But you go and we'll hang back here. And Moses went up on the mountain and he's there for a long time. And eventually, as you're reading Exodus chapter 32, the people begin to get unsettled. He's been gone so long, and they go to Aaron, who is Moses' brother and second in command, and they say, what's happened to this guy Moses? We think maybe he deserted us. Why don't you do something to help us feel better? Because we think we're stuck. And so they take off all their jewelry, and they melt it down and form it into a cap made out of gold. And they say, voila, there's our God. We're secure now. Everything's good. We'll worship this golden calf that we just saw made with our own jewelry. Because Moses is gone and we're afraid he's not coming back. Their faith or not, was not in God who parted the Red Sea, who provided food for them while they were wandering in the wilderness. Their faith was in Moses. And when Moses didn't come back, they transferred it to Aaron, who transferred it to this hump of metal that they created. Friends, what they were grasping for was a need to be in control. They needed to see something or someone to convince them that God was still there. I suspect many of us can subtly be vulnerable here. Because our faith is on some level based upon a person more than on a personal knowledge of and relationship with God himself. Maybe it's a pastor or a spiritual leader. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a friend. But if their faith goes sideways, our faith goes sideways. If I have a struggle and they're not there, I don't know where to turn because my faith is in them and not in God. So, Lest we think have no idols doesn't apply to us, we need to ask ourselves, do I have a faith that sustains me even when a virus says we can't meet for worship for weeks? Kind of an interesting thought. There's another story. It talks about a sneaky snake, and not the one in the Garden of Eden. We got another snake that's sneaky. Something about those snakes, huh? In Numbers chapter 21, the people of Israel are wandering around in the desert. And do you, have you ever traveled with somebody who's a whiner? Uh, don't point at them. I saw you looking at the person next to you. But, that, but you know how it's like, no, oh, what are we going to get there? It's hot this is boring. I mean, you know the spiel. Not that I've ever had any experience with anyone like that. I'm hungry. I'm hot. 
she touched me, he touched me. Can you go faster? Can you go slower? Um, why do I have to wear a mask? Um, I'm going to say that out loud. Um, but the people of Israel, God has miraculously provided for them. And Moses has faithfully led them. But sometimes things got tough. And so the people start to whine. And they start to complain. And God says, I think I'll get their attention. So all of a sudden, everywhere they turn, there are snakes. And the snakes are biting them. And the snakes are venomous. And people are getting sick. And all of a sudden, they reach out to God again instead of complaining. And what God instructs Moses to do is he says, God tells Moses this, he says, make a snake out of bronze, a big snake, and put it on a pole so everybody can see it. And when you get bit, you look at the snake and believe that I will heal you, and I will heal you. What a crazy solution. But it worked. You get bit, you look at the snake, whoo, God heals me, it's all good. God is good, it's great. This was God's idea. The snake was a good thing, even though I called it a sneaky snake. Because it eventually became a problem. Fast forward, now again, this happened. Now fast forward, anybody here more than 100 years old? Okay, fast forward several, thank you. Fast forward several hundred years. All right, they've been carrying the snake with them. It's been around for hundreds of years. All right, and they remember the good old days when that was the snake bite cure. We read in 2 Kings chapter 18, in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Hezekiah, kind of one of those kings like Josiah that Dinah talked about, who did the right thing. He removed the high places, he smashed, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. Alright, so the snake's been around for 100 years, it started out as a good thing. Now that he's getting them back on track, he destroys the snake. Why? For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. They had gone from letting the snake represent God and demonstrate their faith to God to worshiping the snake. It was a good thing. But then it wasn't a good thing because it replaced what it represented. Friends, we're related to those folks. We have an amazing temptation, perhaps even inclination, to put our faith in things. Even good things that God gives us. But the only value the Bible has is 
because it points me to the one true God. This is not a magic protector. Oh, get behind me. No. The value is the God it represents. The church building. I love the church building. But the only value this building has is because it represents God. And it can potentially facilitate our connection to God. The prophet Jeremiah tells a story about the people in his day. They would go out and do horrific, mean-spirited, rotten stuff to their neighbors. And they would run to church and say, oh, we're in the temple, we're safe. Ever play tag? They played, they played sin tag. I would go sin and then I'd run to the church and say, oh, I'm safe. <laughs> Friends, the only value the building has is if it helps us to connect with God. Any particular means or style of expressing our faith in God can become more important to us than the God it should connect us to. That's where we can become vulnerable to idol worship. God understands his creation well enough to know that if I build an idol or a likeness of something or someone I worship, it will not be long before I begin to worship the idol that I can see and touch, not the object the idol represents. Faith in an incomprehensible, unseen God is the essence of a right relationship, and the need for idols is a direct contrast to that. In evaluating how we do with the second core value, it is important to remember it is an issue of worship based on unadulterated faith. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancestors were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, and that he, he rewards those who earnestly seek him. The second part of this core value, verses 5 and 6 in Exodus 20, continues and it says, You shall not bow down to them, idols, or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Sometimes we choke on that word jealous. But it is important to understand God is not interested in petty jealousy. Being upset because you've got something or somebody's got something better than what you've got. Or you want what they have. But it does tell us that God desires our exclusive devotion. Again, not because he needs it, because he knows it's best for us. He loves us and wants what's best for us, and he doesn't want us to compromise. To bow to idols, to put other things in his place, implies that either he doesn't know what's best for us, or he doesn't want us to experience it, both of which are lies. As God created this world in his one order. And as those verses that I just read make it clear, 
There is action and there is reaction. There is choice and there is consequence. If one chooses to place things or people in the place intended for God, there will be consequences. And those consequences will affect future generations. But the reverse is equally true. If one chooses true, vital, and active worship, there are also consequences. Showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Where do you want to be on that continuum? <clears throat> Idolatry or idol worship could be described as spiritual adultery, allowing anything to rival the honor, glory, and esteem that only our God deserves. When looked at it this way, the second core value for Christ followers represents a healthy reminder to us all. And I would close with that quote from St. Augustine. Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshipped. Please pray with me. Father, help us to never lose sight of the importance that we not give anything a place of prominence above you. Not even the good things that you entrust into our lives. Not even the people that you've sent to help shape our lives. The people that we love. The people that we worship with. Help us to understand all of that has value only when it draws us closer to you. And Father, help us to understand we don't need any visual manifestation. But help us to embrace a faith in the 